This is a Let Me Sum Up, your regular deep dive into recent reports on climate and energy. I'm Luke Menzel, recording today on Wurundjeri Land, and I'm joined, as always, by my two co-hosts, the exceptional Alison Reeve. Hello, Alison. Hello, Luke, and it's a pleasure to be with you. I am on the land of the Nongwal and the Nambri people. And a man who has been doing his bit to improve Australia-China relations, Tenant Reed. G'day, Tenant. G'day. And I probably can't say exactly what I've been doing to improve those relations, but I might say more about it later in this very episode. So you're seeking the appropriate diplomatic clearances, and perhaps between now and the end of the episode you might have uh, received them, Tenet. We can only hope. (laughs) On this week's show, we dig deep on the role of carbon sequestration in Australia's journey to net zero and beyond. But first, last week Chris Bowen announced that ANU's Professor Frank Yotso will provide expert input into a review of policy options to address the risk of carbon leakage, which sees production of carbon-intensive goods move offshore to avoid the cost of emissions reduction policies at home. This is the review that will consider the utility of a carbon border adjustment mechanism for Australia, which, as we know, Tenet has been waiting to talk about for months. Alison, what did you make of it? Bastard. First first of all, I I thought it was amusing that the government spirited Tenet out of the country and into somewhere where he had no internet access before they announced the um, leader of the review. It's a good thing they picked a good guy. Otherwise, all the lack of devices in the world wouldn't have stopped me from saying, um, I, I, I don't know what I would have said. I probably would have just like wept silently into the Sea of China. More seriously, I I can't actually think of a better person than Frank to lead the review. He understands this deeply. He is not someone who worries too much about about carbon leakage. You know, he he understands this stuff takes place in a global global context. He's also, I think, got really good deep knowledge of what has been going on in Europe, which is where CBAMs have started. But he's, I think, not one of those people who goes, oh, we should just do what Europe does. He's very aware that Australia is you know, much more in the sphere of the Asia Pacific and that what we have come up with has to fit within that scene as well. Yeah, he's a good pick. One of the biggest problems confronting this review is the fear of a bunch of people that it will be just a giveaway to the biggest whiners in industry and ultimately a fear that it's not going to pay serious attention to what like climate policy demands, but over-prioritise simplistic readings of uh, World Trade Organisation commitments or, or otherwise. And neither of those fears, I think, can find any fertile ground where um, Frank is concerned. Uh, he's uh, like, I, th- I think somebody who's going to have a lot of credibility with everybody connected to this debate. And what what you do need here is um, somebody very sensible, very well-informed, who can put all the pieces together to give a rounded consideration to this rather than, you know, some kind of um, one-eyed barracking wacko who knew exactly (laughs) what the right answer was from 10 years before the review was called. Don't know any of them. (laughs) 
I should say, I should say too, um, Frank's group at ANU has been thinking about climate rate related trade policy for at least three years. Yeah. And, have, you know, they've done a lot of research on it. They've published a lot on it. There's a lot of people there with a lot of strengths in how these things work as well. And I think all of that points towards actually having some really solid policy with any luck. Fingers crossed. Many fingers crossed. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think that this is a long review. Like I think there's a 12-month runway ahead of us. And I think there's probably a bit of literacy building to do around Mm. this mechanism over the the next little while. Um, On all sides of the debate, there's people that have informed opinions. There's, There's plenty of others that have some opinions, but perhaps not the best informed. And there's folk that haven't even started thinking about what is actually a, a pretty complex policy area. So having a bit of time to work our way through all that, I think, is is helpful. I'm also interested in the interaction um, of this review with, you know, where Australia needs to be by the end of next year, which is thinking about its next round of nationally determined contributions, right? And the ambition of those uh, next round of climate targets, which will look ahead to 2035, could directly interact with mechanisms like a CBAM or, or other initiatives that we might take to, to deal with some of those concerns around trade competitiveness and could well form part of an arsenal that tells a coherent story about how more ambitious climate targets fit together with um, Australia maintaining and, and growing uh, an industrial base. Um, so there's there's a sense that some ducks are getting lined up and it'll be really fascinating to see uh, see how this uh, process progresses uh, over the next year or so. Yeah. So we've got in front of us two exciting rounds of public consultation over that period. Have you started writing your submission yet, Tony? <laughs> oh, I, wanna, I, I don't want to jump the gun. I want to keep it fresh, spontaneous. <laughs> uh, but I, I would hope that one of those rounds will be this year, some kind of issues paper, thought starter, here's the, the stuff that's in the mix, here's the the ideas other than CBAM that might be considered uh, and and there, there are some other options uh, as well. Uh, and then uh, re- final report September, October-ish next year uh, and an in-principle decision on what broadly to do out of that sometime afterwards, it's possible that we will have uh, an election not terribly long after this review reports Mm. and so that might lead to a decision being deferred uh, a bit but they've got to... The government of the day will have to make a decision on the issue before long because the... Anti-carbon leakage, anti-squeaky wheel um, elements of the Safeguard 2 package don't hang together forever. And uh, something's got to be visibly in place to address not just the fears of existing activity leaving, but to ensure that there is a really solid base for decisions about transformative investments uh, in mm. zero or near zero emissions industrial capacity. I think there's a potentially slightly tricky public communications campaign around that as well because it would be very easy for bad actors to, if if it was going with the CBAM, to construe this as another great big new tax on everything because Australia does import an awful lot of stuff yep. and it imports a lot of stuff that a lot of us really like. Um, yes. So... 
that whole literacy building, I think, would be really important, but also the timing of how the decision comes around the election because I don't think any of us have got the bottle to fight another election on a great big new tax on everything. Um, that just feels too retro to be true. Well, so I, I agree that there's there are potentially difficult politics around those things. Um, I think it helps that the vast majority of products that people consume that are imported are completely irrelevant to any carbon border adjustment uh, that might be um, needed. Uh, like people, steel and cement as products that you might start with, they're important things. They're, they're important to anyone who's building a house Absolutely. and has just found their contract being renegotiated because the costs have gone yep. up. So yep. there's potentially a nasty nexus there, I think. But most people don't consume that much steel or cement each year. Uh, the impact of a CBAM on uh, on households does not actually need to be very large, and the uh, the potential uh, for the use of revenue from the CBAM to reduce other burdens um, is there to be made use of. It's all right, Alison. As tenants pointing out, the uh, materiality of these carbon costs for the average punter will stop. Any political actors in Australia, political debate, trying to gin up some kind of scare campaign. That's true. I, I obviously have um, have not looked at past experience in order to inform my, my views about what may happen in the future. Fact checks and spreadsheets solve everything. Let's not worry. Uh, shall we uh, chat about a report? Yeah, let's do that. Episode 18 of LMSU, we summed up the state of carbon dioxide removal, a report on global efforts to absorb and durably store carbon that is already in the atmosphere. That global account is given a local focus in a recent report from Australia's Climate Change Authority titled Reduce, Remove and Store, the Role of Carbon Sequestration in Accelerating Australia's Decarbonisation. In it, the CCA highlights the critical role of carbon sequestration in avoiding dangerous climate change, unpacks the relative merits of biological versus geological sequestration and steps us through just how much work we have to do to get the sequestration show on the road. Tenant, what did you make of the CCA's ruminations on sequestration? So the CCA, the Climate Change Authority, which is both uh, a group of eminent members and, uh, and, and a chair, Grant King, uh, who many people may remember uh, in his uh, roles with the Business Council and with Origin Energy, and, and a secretariat supporting them, they have taken the... Uh, similar uh, information input to what was in that uh, global paper that we, we talked about last year. And they have taken that into the realm of, okay, what does public policy need to do in Australia as a result of that? And they are arguing one and a half degrees is out of reach unless we start removing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere in addition to the use of uh, carbon sequestration to 
offset unreducible emissions. Uh, they're saying we need to start talking about net negative emissions uh, beyond 2050 to limit the worst impacts of climate change. So far, so familiar internationally, but uh, clearer, I think, than what we've heard previously domestically. They're saying we're not doing enough of it yet. Globally, we'll need to be uh, removing something like six gigatons of CO2 a year to be Paris consistent, and the world is putting away 43 megatons of uh, carbon dioxide a year through CCS and two gigatons through biological sequestration, and we're not doing it very well globally or locally. Uh, we need to improve our understanding of it, our classification and usage practices, including uh, really thinking in a more complex way about abatement, that a tonne is not just a tonne anymore, which is a, a point that many people have been arguing for a long time, but uh, it is we can discuss this more, but it's, I think it's very interesting to see the authority getting into the a ton is not a ton discourse uh, in, in, in this depth. They're saying we need to scale up the uh, amount of uh, carbon dioxide removal we're doing, including through new funding mechanisms or broadening existing ones like ARENA and the CEFC. Uh, and they're talking about having separate targets for uh, sequestration and abatement uh, in part to wave off the risk of moral hazard that people might be tempted to say, oh, we don't need to change what we're doing, we'll just bung some sequestration on top. Uh, so th there's quite a lot in this paper, but it's a, it, it is a very easy read, I thought, and you know it, it doesn't tread a lot of new ground in terms of the global understanding of uh, the role of sequestration, but I, I think uh, a really interesting input to the target thinking that Australia's got to do uh, over the next 18 months or so. So it, it was interesting the degree to which it directly addressed a lot of the critiques in that um, earlier paper uh, that we reviewed, the, the global state of um, carbon dioxide re removal in terms of just the, the dearth of, of policy, which exists right around the world. Um, and that goes to, you know, everyone's running around talking about their net zero targets. They're not actually unpacking in almost any cases, like the uh, amount of uh, the, the, that target, which is going to be achieved through mitigation and which is going to be achieved through um, sequestration, whether that's biological sequestration or, or geological sequestration. And, you know, the, the lack of uh, deployment, um, the lack of funding, the lack of policy mechanisms which would allow it to quickly scale. And so it almost felt like a, a response to a lot of those issues that were raised in that, that paper and the way that they would play out in, a, um, in an Australian context. And it felt like the CCA was effectively creating a bit of a, a thought starter for um, uh, public servants that are trying to get their head around what this policy space might look like in an Australian context and give them a, a few pointers on, on where they should start their thinking. Relevantly, uh, 
Back when I was involved in the Victorian 2035 emissions target advice process, there were stakeholders uh, putting to that process that Victoria should adopt separate targets for um, sequestration and abatement. And, you know, without telling any tales out of school like th- that that was an idea that um was was in certainly in my mind um one of the complications in thinking about that uh is that there's existing legislation in Victoria that gives a very specific set of tasks uh, around setting combined targets or or just single targets um and the if I remember correctly, the national legislation as it stands is is not uh, terribly different in that respect. There may be some room for for some freelancing or some um, some additional colour and movement around a target, but I think the obligation nationally is to come up with one number. I think you can have sub-targets within that. Like we've already seen that with the way that Safeguard's been done, for example, yep. that it's got a sub-target and, you know, maybe the removals is just one sub-target that, you know, when added to all of the other ones gives you your single number that you then take off to the COP. I think the other question about setting a target is a target's a bit pointless unless it's somebody's job to meet it. Yes. And it's not really obvious in the question of removals whose job it is to meet the target. You know, when we talk about emissions targets and emissions reduction targets, it's quite obvious to sort of go, well, you know, you broke it, you own it, right? You know, you you emitted, it's your job to reduce those emissions. And we don't usually ask people to reduce other people's emissions for them unless they get paid. But with removals, uh, there's a whole question, I think, to be unpacked there about whose job is it? to do removals, particularly when you get into net negative territory, because then you're actually just talking about something that is a, a, it's a common good thing. It's a, you know, you're doing these removals for the good of everybody, um, but there's no clear line of responsibility to the, you know, who put it there in the first place or or anything like that. It, It sort of becomes like, um, kind of like a pollution cleanup type thing, which are often, you know, very fraught and just end up all being paid for by government because it's very hard to draw a line of responsibility to, to somebody else. Well, you're putting your finger on one of the things that got me very excited because well, I've been ruminating on it about this broad concept on the on the podcast and didn't, didn't realise that there was a, a nascent strain of academic thinking that uh, is kind of grappling with these issues. But uh, they do, towards the end of the paper, get to this idea of extended producer responsibility-based mm. policies um, and a, even a carbon take-back obligation, mm. which would see the the folk that are producing fossil fuel be uh, responsible for um, an equivalent amount of carbon dioxide removal down the track, and that could be phased in over time. Um, some authors are suggesting that be, be scaled up between now and 2050, at which point um, they'd be responsible for removing 100% of the CO2 equivalent that uh, fossil fuels are generating. That, that works fine until you get to the world where you're not using fossil fuels anymore, because then you don't have any fossil fuel companies anymore. <laughs> so... Like you know, you're sort of uh, the thing about that sort of approach is that you would be applying that target across a diminishing base of people um, yes. who ideally are taking themselves out 
out of the running altogether. And you will need considerably more than five cents cash back when presented in South Australia <laughs> per, per unit of CO2. You will need boatloads of cash to run the engineered removals processes that they're talking about. But in some ways I think that that's what's so interesting about it because you're sort of starting to get away if there's some amorphous social cost of carbon and starting to ap- apply something approximating the actual cost of future mm. carbon dioxide removals. Yeah. And I think many would say, well, if this is a mechanism for actually internalising some of those future costs and it, it hastens the end of some of those interest- industries, Alison, is that the worst problem in the world? I mean, there's, there's actually a paper that this uh, Climate Change Authority um, report refers to that gets into some detail on this, which I'm very interested to interrogate. Um, so I haven't got my head entirely around it, but it's certainly an interesting idea. The, the lack of a business model yet for negative emissions, net negative emissions, mm. and even it's not entirely obvious what the model is for when uh, a lot more is going to be asked physically of some sectors in order to uh, counterbalance other sectors uh, just in terms of getting to net zero. I mean, the where you have a sector that can structure activities as an offset and sell that to a sector whose obligation is structured like the safeguard, well, that's reasonably obvious, although it's going to occasion a, a lot of complaining from uh, those who've who've got to pay. Uh, But what do you do where you're probably not going to be able to structure a sector as an offset? Mm. Uh, Transport is going to be very difficult to deal with in that way. Uh, When you've got uh, residual emissions that it's just not clear who, um, if anybody, you can practically stick uh, uh, buy offsets obligation on, uh, then I think, as Alison said, it does become more of a um, either a public good, um, cl- socialise the costs of um, paying for for cleanup activity, or uh, you have some probably quite random seeming um, deep pocketed somebody who can be stuck with an obligation although nobody's deeper pocketed than Jane Q public. Yeah, I mean, I think that question about how you create any kind of business model around this is really interesting because Grattan looked at direct air capture quite a bit for the report we wrote on offsets in 2021. And one of the things around direct air capture is, so this is where you're kind of like sucking the CO2 out of the air with some kind of chemical formation or some chemical process and giant fans Um, and giant fans and then you know doing your usual ccs type thing where you you know you compress it and you you inject it underground um the thing about those projects is they're incredibly capital intensive Mm. and they've got absolutely no revenue model at the moment and any future revenue model they have is going to be utterly linked to a government decision of some sort unless you suddenly find that people really, really want large amounts of liquid CO2 for something. Um, That won't involve emitting it again. That won't involve emitting it again. Um, And because of that, 
No one wants to invest in them because it's like there, there is simply no way you can make money out of this at the moment. And even if you had that really strong regulatory environment there, it would still be a high risk investment because of the sovereign risk side. You know, you're just your whole revenue stream will be based off a bunch of government legislation and government legislation can change. The US might have um, the closest thing at the moment to a credible answer here, which is those Section 45Q tax credits for carbon capture and storage, which have got a higher rate of um, of claimability for uh, permanent sequestration as opposed to the use of captured CO2 for enhanced oil recovery. And and those tax credits have been boosted a, a few times, most recently in the Inflation Reduction Act. And that's, you know, that just operates as a part of the tax system. People who do the thing and believe they can justify that they've done it to the IRS will will claim it and there's no new budget decisions needed, no annual um, appropriations needed. It's just in the tax code. But ultimately that means the US government has less tax revenue. Oh, absolutely. So, yeah. you know, ultimately that means fewer services delivered, yep. which means the, effect, the taxpayer is paying in sort of services foregone. Absolutely. And the only thing that's protecting them from uh, foregoing a lot of services at the moment is just that the direct air capture is so stonkingly expensive that even a money vomiting tax credit is only going to encourage a bit of it to happen. Yeah. And if you're trying to get to 6 billion tonnes a year, um, that starts to feel quite a lot of foregone tax. Yes. And that's uh, that's before you even get to some of the issues around the resource implications for this stuff, incredibly energy intensive. Yeah. I mean, direct air capture is somewhere between, I think, five and 10 gigajoules per tonne captured. Um, And then you've got a little bit extra um, to compress it and and inject it underground, which is much less energy. You know, like that's a huge amount of energy per tonne saved. The, I think the question that, that would really come up is like, is that the best thing you can do with five gigajoules? Um, there'd be a lot of other things you could do that would be potentially higher value. And I mean, sure, it's, you know, it's, it's five gigajoules in the future rather than five gigajoules now. But the thing is, if you use that five gigajoules now on a low emissions process, you potentially wouldn't need it in the future for doing direct air capture and, and, and so on. And that's before you get to the amount of infrastructure that you would have to build to support having that five gigajoules available for each tonne. How many extra, you know, solar farms or, or whatever else and how much land you need to cover, it would be... I don't know, none of this feels like a good idea. <laughs> or rather, it feels like we should do as little as possible. Yeah, and that's the trick, right? Yeah. So this goes to tenants' comment earlier about it. A tonne is not a tonne. So I think it's important to make clear to our listeners that the CCA is um, very explicit, saying plan A, <laughs> just don't emit it in the first place. Like you yeah. save yourself a world of pain. Our, our immediate target needs to be ambitious emissions reduction. That is the, the cheapest and easiest way of avoiding dangerous climate change. They note that all of these uh, emissions reduction scenarios, and they point to a couple of uh, IPCC scenarios in particular um, that, that are consistent with Paris, see these, this eye-watering amount of carbon dioxide removal. Um, Tenant, you shouted out 6 billion tonnes every year. 
Yeah, by 2050, it's 14 billion tons a year by 2100. Yeah, um, and as you say, globally we're doing uh, about uh, two billion tons of biological sequestration a year at the moment, but only um, 43 million tons of carbon capture and utilisation and storage. And they make the point that their finite ability to rely on biological sequestration, just because of land use constraints and competition for arable land. They also express, um, is scepticism the word, around the durability of biological Mm. sequestration? There are Um, a lot of caveats there. Lots of caveats. You know, how long can we rely on on that sequestration hanging around, um, particularly in the face of, of of climate change? You know, you would need an active program of renewal around that sequestration, and we're going to run out of space anyway. Yeah. There's, so I, I think I think the CCA here are being quite good in saying, look, it's definitely not Plan A to rely on carbon dioxide removal, but there's also no credible plan that doesn't include much more of it than we're doing today. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and somehow we collectively need to thread this needle of not using the worst solution that is still a solution in preference to better solutions, but not talking ourselves out of using a tool that actually we, we don't have a plan to do without. It's a hard needle to thread. It is. I mean, I think it's sort of trying to move on from a lot of the forecasts you see, like the IEA ones and so on. It feels like they added up everything they thought was possible and went, well, how big's the gap? (laughs) Removals will do that bit. And it was kind of like magic magic happens here, (laughs) you know. We'll just assume that can opener. And... I think they're trying to sort of say, well, we, we need to open that black box and, and see, you know, figure out what's actually inside it to make that that magic happen. With the uh, the Net Zero Australia modelling exercise from earlier this year, well, that released its major results earlier this year, amidst the famous seven Tasmania's worth of renewable energy zones to power the ultra-mega superpower future that they're sketching, a portion of those Tasmanias is to run direct air capture uh, and Mm. uh, pump a whole bunch of CO2 into the Bass Strait in particular. Uh, It's not Mm. the majority of the seven Tasmanias. That is mostly uh, related to replacing coal and gas exports, gigajoule for gigajoule with ammonia exports, which um, I think they themselves would say uh, after running the numbers does not make a lot of sense. Um, but it's it's a significant amount of energy that would be needed for uh, Megadax, and um, that's uh, that's not to be entered into and lightly. Need mega bucks for Megadax. Hey. <laughs> um, Megadax sounds like very large trousers. Yes, but I mean, I, I think that sort of seven Tasmanias question raises a point that the, the CCA brought up as well, which is the sort of social license around removals. Seven Tasmanias is a lot of land. What's seven Tasmanias between friends? Well, in the, the CCA report, you know, they, they talked about Australia <laughs> having a fair bit of non-arable land, but I, I think you sort of need to be careful with that just because just land is not arable land doesn't mean that it's not valued. There's, I think, a little bit too much tendency in a lot of conversations in Australia around whether it's, you know, 
mega renewable energy superpower or DAX or whatever to go, ah, there's heaps of empty space as if we've still got this whole terra nullis concept. Mm. And it's like, no, you know, that that space is not empty. People live there. Um, People do stuff on it already. Mm. It is valued and it has a very deep and intrinsic value to Indigenous communities that taking away is incredibly destructive. So uh, I think we need to be really careful about that. And, I mean, I I don't know, do you guys think, what do you guys think you'd need to do to get social licence to do CDR on a large scale? I don't know whether the social licence part or the who pays part is is the harder part. It's like Mm. a heck of a lot of trouble on both fronts. (sighs) Well, I think you'd have to start with actually explaining to people what the hell it is. Mm. <laughs> it's okay, people of Australia. We're going to be doing some removals with DAX, but don't worry. <laughs> A mega DAX, Tim. Mega DAX. Ultra removals of your mega DAX. <laughs> but we'll seek your consent first. Free prior and informed consent to DAX removal. This won't hurt a bit. Uh, look, I can imagine a plausible scenario where we are galvanised around the task of maintaining a safe climate, you know, and the community is gathering around that and all, all options are on the table and, that you know, we have, we're almost on that war footing where something like this, you know, you could build a consensus across the community for it. feels like we're a long way away from that. And in some senses, you know, getting too um, invested in, you know, how on earth we would scale up to, you know, 6 billion tonnes of mm. uh, CDR every year um, distracts us from the immediate task of um, getting above 43 million tonnes globally, because a lot of this is about learning rates. It is very expensive. It's likely to remain remain pretty expensive, but the way that we drive yep. costs down is yep. by doing it, right? And it's it's plausible that there could we could see those learning rate benefits from direct air capture. So, you know, I, for me at least, you know, we could tie ourselves up, up in knots thinking about who the customer will be for this, you know, some – two or three decades hence, working out how we drive that deployment over the next five or, or ten years, I think, is a more material question. Um, and that's kind of what a lot of the like the tax incentives that have started to roll out in places like Canada and the US are kind of focused on, right? It's just trying to get the ball rolling. It's a recognition we need to do some of this stuff and work it out. And to your point, Elson, around the magical thinking bit of this, one of the ways in which we find out whether it's magical thinking or whether it's there's actually something here that we can, you know, build a, a plausible pathway around um, is by doing it and getting some more experience with it. And it would be nice to know that as soon as possible as well because you kind of – you yes. don't want to find that out in 2045. No. <laughs> <laughs> the tide goes out and you've got no DAX on. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> this is going to be a bottomless well of quality humour for the next several decades. <laughs> Congratulations, Australia and the world. Should we talk a little bit about, because there, there is a, as, you know, one has to have in these sorts of kind of, you know, dreaming about the future reports, like the kind of the, the economic opportunity that Australia has around around this, yeah. which... I thought it was interesting. Um, what, what did you two make of that? It's a very small part of the report. Like, th- th- this, this is a report with 
a bunch of ideas in it and some of them are developed more than others and really there's just a a, a teeny teaser at the end of this saying broadly, hey, if we can do this for us, we've got potential to do it for others. So maybe let's do some preparatory steps for international trade in emissions uh, units, but oriented at Australia as a seller, not a buyer uh, from from such markets. And that's really it. Like, mm. let's, let's give it a think. Could be good. Yeah, I mean, I think they sort of linked that as well, that to the, the idea that Australia is comparatively wealthy and comparatively emissions intensive and so it would perhaps be reasonable for other countries to think that we should take on more of a share of this than than others might. In some ways it felt like that was getting a little bit ahead of where we actually are. Like coming, you know, coming back to what you were just saying, Luke, right, we... We're not even really sure if this works yet, let alone whether it's a, a massive trading opportunity for us to become sort of international, I don't know, international carbon removal buccaneers or something. <laughs> I don't know. Um, That's so much better than superpower. I like that. But buccaneer, yeah. The world's biggest suckers of carbon <laughs> out of the atmosphere. <laughs> We do like big things, Tennant. Yeah. We'll have the big vacuum cleaner. <laughs> the big deck. <laughs> I'm not going to speculate where that sits in relation to the big banana. Oh, oh God. You're going to get us in the adults only section of, um, of Apple Podcasts. I'm strictly right. juvenile, I assure you. <laughs> I think you were trying to make a point, Alice. I was, but I've completely forgotten what it is now, and I also feel like I'm letting Frankie down because, you know, she said she wasn't leaving you unsupervised. Yes. Somebody's got to act in loco parentis here, Alison. <laughs> oh, dear me. I've got a controversial thought. Go for it. Mm. So one of the things that the CCA says here is that we should match... Uh, kinds of sequestration to the longevity of the emissions that they are counterbalancing. And I think the primary intended meaning of this is, look, CO2, once emitted, hangs around in the atmosphere for a very, very long time and the durability of geological sequestration is a much better match for that than the reversibility of biosequestration. But I sort of wondered, I guess because I am an, anno an annoying person, if that might also be interpreted uh, to say that actually all this biosequestration that we're like, we are doing a bunch of and we're going to continue doing a bunch of, uh, even though there are limits to its growth and there's uh, limits to its durability, <sighs> that biosequestration might be a good fit for counterbalancing fugitive methane emissions. Methane also hangs around in the atmosphere for a limited time, just as uh, biocarbon might hang around in woods and uh, soils for a limited time before they succumb to drought or wildfire or land use change or whatever. So, hey, uh, the people who raise these complaints about a ton is not a ton are often people who are trenchant critics of the gas sector and uh, the gas sector getting the the gimme of, hey, we get to claim uh, all the the cheap, easy, but temporary biosequestration as, as being the best match for our emissions, that might annoy a lot of people. Although, of course, you would want 
a lot more tonnes of biosequestration per tonne of methane being counterbalanced, particularly because I think for this purpose, I would for once say that using a, 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 a shorter global warming potential would be perfectly appropriate uh, because you're only concerned with the warming over that residence period uh, of the uh, the carbon in the biosequestration. I thought you were going somewhere different with that, tenant, and talking about you know, the, the biosequestration being linked to biological sources in the first place. Oh. So that this would be a way to deal with cow burps that doesn't involve trying to get them all to take a seaweed pill every day because that's a pretty large source of, like single biggest source of um, within the ag sector source of emissions yep. is the, um, the, the cow burps basically. That's where I thought you were going with that. Well, um, the the argument would apply to both uh, biogenic mm. and fossil methane releases. Although the fossil methane yeah. releases have a, a tail, a long tail of um, carbon dioxide product as well, because that's what the methane ultimately breaks down to. Uh, and so that's a net addition. But I mean, you, you also it, it sort of comes back to that moral makes that moral hazard question sort of turn up as well because. At the moment, the way that you get rid of that methane is by flaring it and turning it into CO2, right? Turning 28 tonnes into one on the tonne is a tonne is a tonne um, calculus. And potentially if you're saying, oh, no, that stuff is all eligible, more eligible for offsets, then people stop flaring. And so I think you'd have to, you'll have to do a spreadsheet on this tenant because I can't do it in my head. Um, Music to my ears. Out. Don't encourage him, Alison. <laughs> if you could just go, go and get on with that. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, you'd need to actually check that moral hazard question yeah. as well and see whether you're inadvertently stopping people from flaring and whether flaring is a better outcome. Well, I think we've created a moral quicksand in which everyone can be very unhappy with everybody else in the brief moments before they slip beneath the surface <laughs> forever. <laughs> we've mentioned moral hazard a few times over the course of this conversation. And um, in, usually when we talk about CDR or when we talk about moral hazard, it's like, oh, there's going to be this magical technology that turns up in the future and means we don't have to worry about the emissions we're creating now. Hooray. And that's obviously a bad outcome. But it it's interesting in this paper, they sort of say, yes, that's totally a thing. We need to deal with that. And, you know, we've talked about the way that they would like us to consider, you know, uh, distinct targets for, for CDR versus, you know, traditional mitigation activity as a way of dealing with that and making it clear to everybody that this is an all of the above rather mm. than relying on this future technology over and above things that we can do now. But they kind of flip it as well and say, well... Um, it would be super perverse if concern about moral hazard got in the way of us investing in a technology that we're pretty sure we're going to need in some form or other. Mm. And that's kind of the alarm bell they're, they're, they're sounding. It's like, well, yes, we, we need to be concerned about moral hazard, um, but but we need that is a concern we need to manage and not react to. And I think this is something to be conscious of as folks that have been exposed to the climate debate in Australia over the last 10, 15, 20 years, um, in which, you know, the possibility of geological sequestration of um, emissions sourced from coal-fired power stations has often been sort of a, sh- a shimmer off in the distance um, that has uh, been pointed to, and many would argue has has delayed uh, action on 
um, reducing emissions from those sorts of generators. Well, that can be true, and it can be simultaneously true that this we're going to need this in some form or another. Mm-hmm. And putting aside, you know, the vast quantities of um, of emissions reduction we're going to need, uh, you know, in these IPC scenarios because of what we're failing to do now. Um, even if we do massively ramp up ambition, there are there are types of emissions that we simply do not know how to mitigate mm. from industrial processes and the like, and we need to do something with them, either to capture them or store them or to offset them in some way. And I think that this report makes that point pretty strongly. I, I think there's a, there's a parallel here with insurance, right? You know, just because some people take out a massive life insurance policy on their partner and then kill them in order to claim them <laughs> doesn't mean that life insurance per se is a bad thing. And most of us end up taking it out, right? And we don't ban life insurance because of those few bad actors. Um, and, I mean, this is what we're sort of doing here on, on our current projections, it looks like we're going to need this. The, mm. the tricky thing about insurance is you never really know how much to buy, but it is often better to have some rather than than none. And so I, I think what this is sort of saying is, well, if this is an insurance policy, we need to start paying the premiums on it um, because you can't, you know, sorry, to, to switch from life insurance to health insurance Um the day to take out health insurance is not on your 75th birthday. I would I would say that if anybody tried to interest you in that kind of life insurance, which is a group policy and the last person alive claims all the insurance, <laughs> think about how well you really know those people. <laughs> that sounds like a net. That could be a Netflix show, I reckon. Oh, game show, <laughs> for sure. It's kind of like it's Squid Game for insurance yeah. or something. <laughs> I will see your insurance metaphor and I will raise you a parking metaphor. Ooh. Parking your car is a lot harder if you are only allowed to drive forwards and never backwards. But reversing is not much good if you I have or- been avoiding reverse parking since I did my driving I'm test. I'm not saying this is reverse parallel parking. <laughs> I'm just saying to be able to go back a bit after you have gone just slightly closer to the car in front than is really polite. So, you know, you want to be able to reverse a bit, but reversing is not much good if you've already crashed the car. Especially if you don't have life insurance. <laughs> <laughs> How many metaphors have you got, Menzel? I don't have any metaphors, but I think uh, that's a good place to stop. Unless you, either of you have other topics that you are desperate to canvas off the back of this report. Look, I would just say a very quick word that I just applaud the CCA, uh, their, their board and their staff for flexibility here. Uh, I think that they are people who have personally been strongly associated with a tonne is a tonne for a long time. And uh, they are showing a, a lot of um, intellectual curiosity and flexibility and growth, and that's a good thing because life is complicated. Yeah, I mean, this is exactly the sort of report that you want the CCA to be doing, which is to be looking slightly further ahead than mm-hmm. what yep. the rest of the public service does and what governments do and say, hey, this thing is coming and putting the sort of the framework around the debate to help everybody have a debate about it that's sensible. Although we weren't particularly sensible, but <laughs> that's, that's our shtick, right? <laughs> Thank you.
As always, we close out the show with one more thing, in which we all share something that is currently captivating our attention. Alison, what have you got? I have been thinking about the wind chill factor, and in particular the wind chill factor in the UK this week. Their government held one of its regular auctions that they hold for contracts for difference for new renewables. And what happened this time around is not a single wind farm bid into it. Mm. The wind industry is claiming that the maximum price that was available was too low given inflation and also because the cost of equipment and projects is going up because of the European energy crisis. Um, They also reckon they told the government this ahead of time and were ignored. The government sort of says, well, we thought they were just trying to squeeze more value out of the auction. So, yeah, a bit of a moral hazard question here, I Mm. guess. Some European wind farm companies are now walking away from projects. There's one in the UK that Fattenfall has said that it's going to stop working on because it's not going to be a profitable project. So inflation and rising interest rates is really biting. Mm. The UK is probably going to miss its renewables targets as a result of this auction not delivering, and that puts its whole net zero target at risk. So I think this is a, this is a real warning sign for, you know, not to let the keyboard warriors out about gen cost, you know, having unnecessarily low costs in it or anything, but just to understand that Everything we know about what renewables costs has been formed in an environment where inflation and interest rates were low and we Mm. are not in that world anymore. And my recollection from that GenCost episode is that, well, solar costs were you know coming down quickly, Um, the costs associated, particularly with the materials for um, constructing wind farms, nowhere near as quickly, and that was stretching out for some years to come, right? Yeah. That's right. And there's been some high-profile problems with the reliability of some components in at least one manufacturer's uh, recent uh, wind turbines, which is another bit of headwind, oh, another bit of uh, of problem <laughs> for for that sector. So, yeah, it's bad. It's my insight. <laughs> Uh, do you have a somewhat less depressing uh, one more thing for us, Tennant? I have a, a mysterious one more thing. Uh, my one more thing is the seventh Australia-China high-level dialogue, which was held very recently in Beijing. Oh, you got your diplomatic clearance there, Reid. I, I did, and uh, <laughs> I, I went uh, on this Australian delegation to take another step in restoring the Australia-China relationship after the twists and turns, as some have put it, of the last few years. This dialogue hasn't run since uh, early 2020 for multiple reasons, uh, including that Australia was uh, very deep in the back of the doghouse as far as the government of China was concerned for quite a while. Well, we're out of the doghouse. The sun is shining. The relationship is in comparatively rude health, if not quite back to where people thought it was in 2018, 2019. Uh, But this dialogue... Uh, was conducted under something vaguely referred to as Chatham Plus, where you can't even say what was said, not on, not uh, not just attributed to anybody. I can say what I said, and I raised uh, the fact that uh, 
Australians are getting very excited about being a clean energy superpower, maybe. And one of the things we're excited about is having a mega ultra green iron export industry and that it seemed to me that that industry could not exist without deeper economic integration with China and that we'd be very interested to hear if China had any enthusiasm for this green iron vision that involved moving a significant chunk of their value chain from their steel sector into Australia. And I can't Hmm. say what they said, but I will say that Australia has a lot more vision sharing and underlying economic logic articulation in front of us before we can exactly count on uh, that bit of the superpower coming to pass. Uh, And the other thing I did was foreshadow that uh, Australia was going to have consideration of a carbon border adjustment mechanism over no. the year and that <laughs> if this happened... I'm, I'm surprised they let you come home, Tenet. <laughs> if this happened, it was not something that was directed at China or any other trade partner, that it would be done in an entirely WTO-consistent fashion and that it would be about building the case for investment in clean production wherever that production might take place. And all I will say in addition to that is uh, we should all be paying a lot of attention to the economic debates going on in China insofar as we can see them because... Because uh, <laughs> some of them are Chatham plus plus, which means you can't even talk about the existence of the dialogue by the sound of it. <laughs> I want to know, where do I... I can subscribe to Apple TV plus. Where do I subscribe to Chatham plus plus? <laughs> I think you need to defect in order to get access to that one. Okay, I'm not sure I'm prepared to do that, but uh, that sounds like a very fascinating trip. It was. It was a whirlwind. Uh, I was pretty tired by the end of it. Uh, I I didn't take any of my devices. I was like taking dozens of pages of handwritten notes. My fingers are still sore, but uh, um, I was I was delighted to be there. Uh, and we had an excellent delegation led by uh, Craig Emerson, former mm. trade minister, uh, and with uh, many eminent people on it, but also me. <laughs> Right. Well, uh, for my one more thing, I thought I'd highlight the uh, the latest missive from our friend Ron Ben David. Um, of course, on the last episode of Let Me Sum Up, we covered his assessment of the shortcomings of Australia's energy market design and, and governance and institutions as he sees them, and why they aren't up to the challenge of seeing us safely through this energy transition that we're all working our way through. And um, and while I think the three of us were pretty positive about that paper on the whole, um, we noted that uh, it was a bit short on a specific reform agenda. Well, the Notorious RBD has followed up with a new paper, of course he has, titled Six Institutional Reforms for a Timely Energy Transition, uh, which seems to furnish us with some of that specificity. Um, it only landed in my inbox yesterday, so I haven't um, given it a thorough read-through. Uh, but I have given it a cursory scan, and it reveals some exciting subheads, such as, there's no transition without derogation. Ooh. <laughs> And mobilising SWAT teams to solve technology gaps, Uh, which leads me to think that this fourth episode in Ben David's Evolving Energy Market Space Opera could indeed be subtitled A New Hope. (laughs) (laughs) 
Um, I, for one, am looking forward to uh, having a read through this Zvelte, uh, I think, nine-page paper. Um, and there will be a link in the show notes for any listeners that want to find out uh, what Ben David thinks we should be doing to solve some of the problems he identified last episode. Fantastic. I am glad, by the sound of it, that the six institutional reforms title is not a literary reference to Lewis Carroll and six impossible things before breakfast. It is a bit like that, though. Oh. <laughs> oh. How about maybe why don't we just make it six impossible things before twenty thirty, and that makes it a little more yeah. one a year. We can manage that. Yeah. yeah, that's our show for today. We're on social media. You can find us on social network formerly known as Twitter. We're all on LinkedIn. Uh, have you given up on Threads, Tenant? Uh, let's just say Threads is in uh, suspended animation. Okay. One day to be reanimated when uh, the starship of uh, my phone approaches Alpha okay. Centauri. Well, there you go. Um, uh, Alison, did you do any homework on uh, <laughs> the social accounts or website of our, of our little podcast here? <laughs> if I was to ask you um, what our email address was and what people should send there, would you be able to respond? <laughs> Uh, sure. It's um, let me sum up at <laughs> yeah, no, at Hotmail, no. Um, Are you just trolling us now? Uh, I think so. Our email address, listeners, should you wish to send feedback, uh, is mailbag at letmesumup.net. And our website is letmesumup.net where you can find the whole back catalogue of all the podcasts. Gold star. And you even did Tenant's job for him as well. There you go. <laughs> Not for the first time. <laughs> I'm going to kick back in the hammock. Well done. All right. Well, for Alison Reeve and Tenant Reed, I'm Luke Menzel. Thanks for listening and we'll talk to you again soon. Speaking of board games, I do have a copy of Power Grid. So, Alison, next time you're in Melbourne, if you're up for it, um, sure, I'm we should play. Very into breaking this out. Yeah. So well, the rules seem very complicated. <laughs> <laughs> Do you need to send them to me ahead of time? I or think <laughs> I think I might I might see if I can locate a PDF version of the rules. I also think they might be like many complex board games, pretty impenetrable unless you're actually playing the game. Until you start playing, yeah. So, I mean, mm-hmm. glancing over them could be a little bit helpful and I'm sure would sure. speed our progress. Yeah. We'll learn how to play with the basic rules before doing the advanced version where you have to use the national electricity law. <laughs> we should get Ron Ben David over. <laughs> that would be so fun, honestly. <laughs> and he can critique the rules yes, yes. of the game as we're playing it. <laughs> and then afterwards, commemorative T-shirts could be made saying either I defeated Ron Ben David at Power Grid or Ron Ben David cleaned my clock at Power Grid. <laughs>